you're listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on July 21st at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Dr. Abby Stockstill to discuss her research entitled Landscape and Identity in Medieval Morocco, which she conducted in Morocco as a grantee of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. Dr. Abby Stockstill received her PhD in the history of art and architecture from Harvard University and is currently an assistant professor of Islamic art and architecture at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. She has contributed essays to academic journals such as Mukarnas and Hesperus Tamuda, as well as to a number of edited volumes. She is also an assistant editor for the International Journal of Islamic Architecture and serves on various communities within the International Center for Medieval Art and the Historians of Islamic Art Association. She's thrilled to be returning to Morocco after a two-year pandemic-enforced hiatus and can be found wherever couscous is being served. Welcome so much, Abby. We're delighted to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, the title of your research, your upcoming book, is Landscape and Identity in Medieval Morocco. And a big focus of that is on Marrakesh. Why Marrakesh? That's because in looking at the Islamic West, Marrakesh is one of the few cities that truly embraces its place, its sense of environment. And because of its history of preservation, when it was built, in sort of the height of the Middle Ages, as well as the way in which it was preserved throughout the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, you can still see that relationship very clearly. So how has Marrakesh been understood in the past, and how is your work reframing that discussion? Well, Marrakesh has been popular with scholars almost as long as the field has existed but it has typically served as the model for how we understand the Islamic city. Having a central mosque, a marketplace, a center of power, all of those things being centrally located and then the city growing around those, that was how the French and Spanish scholars of the early 20th century understood urbanism across the Islamic world. Now, that idea has really broken down as scholars have become more interested in individual contexts uh, as the Arabic scholarship has gotten better. But the fact of the matter is, when that idea was being developed, people were looking at Marrakesh. And so it remains in this kind of interstitial space where Marrakesh is both a paradigm and at the same time is not being fully contextualized. And my work is actually trying to bring the focus back to the history and context of Marrakesh. Now, the way my work is trying to do that is to look at the city not as just a collection of individual monuments, but to look at the relationships between those monuments, how they interacted with one another and how they interacted with the landscape around them. Can you give me an example of one of these interactions, something that you're highlighting in your book? Absolutely. So one of the central monuments of Marrakesh, and maybe the one that most people would associate with Marrakesh, is the Kutubiyah Mosque, that large minaret right by the Jamatna. You can spot it anywhere across the city. And uh, of course, because of the protectorate era rule that you were never supposed to build higher than a palm tree, that impression of the minaret hovering over the city has remained, even as intervening centuries of construction has built up. 
Just south of that, in the medieval era under the Almohads, so we're talking like early 12th century, they also built a palace, a public square, and a garden complex, the Agdal Garden. Now, each of those sites in their own right is really fascinating. Uh, the main square was this site of public intellectual debates, ceremonies of loyalty and pledging fealty to the Almohad Caliph. Similar things also happened in the Agdal Garden, where you would have these religious performances, uh, ritual readings and processions of the Musahif of Uthman, as well as of Ibn Tumart. But what is sort of missing from that analysis is the fact that all of these sites are lined up along a north-south axis. And when you think about the direction that people are moving in between these spaces, you actually get a performance of the Almohad Caliph and his court continually entering and leaving the city. Now, considering the fact that the sort of heartland of Almohad power was up in the Atlas Mountains, this is kind of continually reviving the impression that someone would have had watching these ceremonies that the Caliph is coming out of the mountains fresh from whether that's battle or a ritual review of the tribes in the mountains, it kind of constantly reinforces this idea, this performance of the caliph not being entirely urban, but not being entirely rural either. They've placed themselves somewhere in between. Fascinating. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the challenges inherent to studying Berber culture in the medieval period, particularly in relation to the Almoravids and the Almohads. So it's widely known amongst scholars of these periods that the Almoravids and the Almohads had a deep connection to their ethnic background. What we call that, whether that's Berber or whether we break that down into tribal confederations like Sanhaja or Masmuda, that's something that's still being worked out. Now, one of the chief challenges, of course, is that for most of the medieval period, we're talking about a linguistic and social group that was primarily oral. And so standing from our 21st century viewpoint, we don't have access to the language as clearly and as directly as we do Arabic, where those texts are being written down, they're being preserved, they're being copied, they're being published in critical editions. What we have to look for instead is kind of reading in between the lines of that. When we see Berber vocabulary being transliterated into Arabic, when we see Berber names being used, all of these are clues that there's something going on that we just can't quite bite directly into, so to speak. Now, Ramzi Ruigi has recently come out with a phenomenal book called Inventing the Berber, where he discusses and breaks down how the idea of what it means to be Berber was a construction over the course of the 14th and 15th centuries that then got revived in the 20th century as part of Morocco's move towards independence. Uh, this idea of Berber being something that is truly Maghrebi, truly Moroccan. So added to the fact that we don't have direct access to Berber texts or Berber sources, we're also trying to unpack centuries of contemporary ideas about what it means to be Berber. Now, the reason that's important for the Almoravids and the Almohads is that when this idea of Berberness is being created, largely by Ibn Khaldun, most famously, right, um, in the 14th century, 
he's actually writing about the Almoravids and the Almohads themselves. And so they are the case study for the construction of what this identity actually means. They're using their ethnic or sectarian identities as a major point in how they're crafting an imperial concept. And part of my work has been looking at the ways in which it's possible to analyze that in the absence of direct texts. How does the landscape of Marrakesh and its surroundings come into your work? And what kinds of methods are you using to explore this dimension? So tying together this idea of Berber identity and also Marrakesh as a city, what really is unique about Marrakesh is that Marrakesh really responds to the landscape that it's in. It's built in this house basin, this depression just north of the Atlas Mountains. And the Atlas Mountains themselves are really quite stark and quite sharp. The rise from this basin to the High Atlas is very short and very fast. And it's made all the more extreme by the variances in color, in tone, uh, and in vegetation. Now, when Marrakesh was originally founded by the earlier Almoravid dynasty, they were from the Senhaja Confederation, a group of tribes that was primarily based in the Sahara Desert or just north of the Sahara Desert. And in founding Marrakesh, they thought they had this really great locale from which to conquer the rest of the Maghreb and to move towards Fez or towards Al-Andalus. And technically, that's true, but it also meant that they were then separated from their ethnic homeland in the Sahara by the Atlas Mountains, by a pass that was only seasonally traversable during the winter. It's almost impossible to get directly through the Atlas on foot. Even now, (laughs) there are large areas of the Atlas that are completely cut off and isolated during the winter. Exactly. Not to mention, there was another tribal confederation that occupied the High Atlas, the Masmuda. And whenever any tensions arose between the Masmuda and the Senhaja, that meant that the Almoravids weren't really going to be able to move south again until they'd gotten the Masmuda back on their side. Now, the Almohads, who are actually primarily based out of the Masmuda confederation, they actually have this very stark visual reminder of where they come from in the Atlas Mountains. And when you're standing in Marrakesh, it's so extreme. The city itself is so flat. And then when you you can see just hovering above the horizon, this outline of these stark blue mountain peaks. And so it's this ever present idea of an ethnic homeland being promoted within the city itself. And they take advantage of this in how they build out the city, how they expand the city from its original core. They move steadily southwards in this axis that I was talking about earlier, and they take advantage of the fact that whenever they happen to leave the city, they would always come back in through this southern axis so that it would appear to those in the city themselves, those going to these ritual performances or ceremonial parades, that they were in fact coming back down out of the atlas. Now, if we take the Ibn Khaldun model of dynasty and and how a a dynasty can maintain its power, this would ideally, or at least theoretically, remind people that the Almoravids are based from the Masmuda and that they haven't let that go. Uh, Ibn Khaldun says that when you sort of abandon your, your ethnic background, when you abandon the sort of harsh climate 
of the mountains or the desert, a rural environment, that you lose your legitimacy, that you lose your right to hold on to power. And my work tries to demonstrate that the Omohats were conscious of this, that they were actively trying to maintain this stasis between holding onto their power, holding onto their legitimacy that's rooted in their ethnic homeland and meeting the demands of an empire in Marrakesh and having a capital city. That hoped to expand in a different direction from the ethnic homeland. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So Marrakesh has a special mystique. Um, it's a name that just conjures all of these amazing images in people's minds. But in fact, what makes Marrakesh different, according to your work, your experiences, from some of the other cities in the Islamic West, like Seville or Rabat? You know, the first time you visit Marrakesh, it, it kind of hits you in the face. It's a total assault on the senses. The smells, the sounds, it's loud, it's chaotic. You can smell tea, you can smell other humans, it, it's very dense and, and packed. Uh, and color is a big element of that as well. The color of the city, you know, it's called the Red City popularly, comes from that ochery tone of the walls, of so much of the architecture that makes up the city itself um, in the 12th century as much as today. And that stands in sharp contrast to the blue tones of the Atlas Mountains. You know, in the heat of the summer, the intense blue of the sky and the red tones of the architecture, they really do kind of clash in the senses. And that impression tends to stay with people. And that's, I think, as much true today as it was in the medieval period. And I don't think it's any wild assumption to say that the architects of medieval Marrakesh were aware of that, that they took advantage of this. Uh, and so when we're thinking about the relationship between a city and a place, Marrakesh is very much engaged in that relationship. It's conscious of that relationship. The city itself is being used to emphasize where it is in the south of Morocco, in the Maghreb, in this landscape that, in the Middle Ages at least, was deeply, deeply associated with a very complex web of ethnic negotiations and Berber politics. In other cities, in places like Rabat or Seville, those relationships are lost. Part of my book project actually looks at how the Almohads tried to do something similar at Seville and at Rabat, but it's actually kind of unsuccessful because it doesn't have the same ethnic resonance as the Atlas Mountains does for Marrakesh, and because they can't constantly reenact that relationship at either one of these cities. Seville had this long pre-existing history from the Roman and the Visigothic era, as well as successive other dynasties in the Islamic period that had built up the city. And that kind of chaotic plan is something that the Almohads are trying to react to, trying to respond to in ways that kind of catches them on the back foot a little bit. At Rabat, they have a relatively clean slate. I mean, you do have some Roman ruins there, but not so much that the city was going to fight them back on their urban planning, basically. But without the mountains there, without the atlas there, and without that relationship 
between the local population and the landscape, the Almohads come across as interlopers. And that same performance of coming in and out of the city, of engaging with the landscape and the urban framework, it just doesn't work. They can't seem to respond to the city in the same way. And they're constantly fighting for control over these cities, Seville and Rabat. They kind of have a tenuous grasp on politically, at least. Whereas Marrakesh is sort of loyal to the Almohads till the very end, at least partially because I think over generations you have this relationship built up that identifies the dynasty with the actual physical fabric of the city. Perfect. You've been listening to Maghrib and Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. Thank you for listening. <laughs>